I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. As we continue our chronological trip through the Gospels, today we'll be looking at passages in Matthew chapter 16, all the way through Matthew chapter 17, verse 9, and Mark chapter 8, verse 10, through Mark chapter 9, verse 10, and Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 36. We're going to see Jesus is still ministering up in northern Israel, up and around the Sea of Galilee. And these events, by the way, take place in the last year of Jesus' ministry before his crucifixion. We begin today in Matthew chapter 16, verse 1, and Mark chapter 8, verse 10, with another confrontation with the Sadducees and the Pharisees by Jesus. Matthew 16, verse 1. The Pharisees also with the Sadducees came, and tempting desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. He answered and said unto them, When it is evening, ye say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and lowering. O ye hypocrites, ye can discern the face of the sky, but can ye not discern the signs of the times? A wicked and an adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall be no sign be given unto it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. And he left them and departed. Now, Mark chapter 8, verses 10 through 12, the same occasion. And straightway he entered into a ship with his disciples and came into the parts of Dalmanutha. And the Pharisees came forth and began to question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and saith, Why did this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, there shall no sign be given unto this generation. Well, this episode takes place while they're still in northern Israel, presumably around the Sea of Galilee, although the two places mentioned here by name, Magdala and Dalmanutha, are today unknown locations. When the Sadducees and Pharisees, who were leaders in religion among the populace, when they come to Jesus insincerely seeking a sign, he addresses these very religious men as hypocrites and then characterizes their request when he says in Matthew 16, verse 4, A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given unto it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. Jesus is making reference to his words on an earlier occasion back in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 42. Both there and in this passage, Jesus is declaring that his resurrection will serve as the only sign that these people will see. Then we have a lesson on leaven. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 5 through 12, and the parallel passage, Mark chapter 8, verses 13 to 21. First of all, Matthew chapter 16, verse 5. And when his disciples were come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Then Jesus said unto them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. Which when Jesus perceived, he said unto them, O ye of little faith, why reason ye among yourselves? Because ye have brought no bread? 
Do ye not yet understand, neither remember the five loaves of the five thousand, and how many baskets ye took up? Neither the seven loaves of the four thousand, and how many baskets ye took up? How is it that ye do not understand that I spake it not to you concerning bread, that ye should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees? Then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. Now Mark chapter 8, verses 13 to 21. And he left them, and entering into a ship again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, neither had they in the ship with them more than one loaf. And he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and of the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. And when Jesus knew it, he saith unto them, Why reason ye, because ye have no bread? Perceive ye not yet, neither understand? Have ye your heart yet hardened? Having eyes, see ye not? And having ears, hear ye not? And do ye not remember? When I break the five loaves among five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? They said unto him, Twelve. And when the seven among four thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? And they said, Seven. And he said unto them, How is it that ye do not understand? Well, Jesus, as he talks with his disciples after the incident with the religionist in the preceding section of verses that we read, he compares them to leaven in the following context. And here it is. Listen closely. Leaven, being yeast, grows until everything it contacts is affected by the leaven. Likewise, These religious leaders had spread their corrupt doctrine to the point that it had permeated the thinking of the Jewish people. It's interesting that Matthew recalls specifically that Jesus mentioned the Sadducees in the same context with the Pharisees, but Mark mentions Herod. Certainly, Jesus lumps all three into the same religious but lost category. By the time Jesus would be crucified, the leaven, the corruption of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Herod would all three develop into an angry mob ready to crucify the Messiah. If you thought, as many do, that all religions are good, if you're sincere, well, this encounter between Jesus and these very religious men should certainly cause you to reassess your position on that. These verses make it apparent that the disciples had a tough time transitioning between physical and spiritual applications. Jesus perceived that they thought perhaps Jesus' remarks had something to do with the fact that they were hungry and had a food shortage. Thus, the reference to the two miraculous multi-thousand feedings on a shoestring budget. Jesus declares and clarifies that the growing leaven analogy speaks to the spreading corruptness of these God-rejecting religionists. Only Mark records the next incident in Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 26, with the healing of a blind man by Jesus. Verse 22, And he cometh to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him, and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes, and put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up. And he was restored and saw every man clearly. And he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town nor tell it to any in the town. 
Bethsaida is located on the north side of the Sea of Galilee in northern Israel. Jesus demonstrates his power over blindness in this passage. Only Mark records this particular healing. There are a couple of interesting aspects to this account. First of all, Jesus met the man in Bethsaida, but led him out of town to perform the healing. Subsequently, he told him not to go back into town, but to return to his own house. Since a vital aspect of Jesus' earthly ministry was to be fulfilled in his crucifixion, on Passover day after his three-year-plus ministry, Jesus took measures along the way to control the, well, hype, so to speak, over miracles such as this one. Secondly, it's interesting that after Jesus' first action in the process of healing the man, the man sees, but not clearly. He saw the men as trees walking, he said. However, part two of the healing process restores the man's eyesight completely. Many over the years have conjectured as to why Jesus healed this man in two phases, but Mark simply doesn't elaborate himself. There's simply no way of knowing from Scripture why the healing was performed in this fashion in two different phases. Then we find a defining moment of great experience for Peter in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 20, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30, and Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 21. First of all, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say thou art John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Now let's see the same incident from Mark's perspective in Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But some say, Elijah and others, one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answered and said unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. Now Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 21, the same occasion. And it came to pass, as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him. And he asked them, saying, Whom say the people that I am? They answering said, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. He said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Peter answering said, The Christ of God. And he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing. Jesus and his disciples are in northern Israel at this time, around Caesarea Philippi, about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It's really a simple question that Jesus asked, and here it is. Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Matthew gives this occasion twice as much attention as Mark and Luke. When Jesus gets an assortment of answers from his disciples, he follows up with another question. But whom say ye that I am? 
Peter wastes no time with his reply. He says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, that's all that Mark and Luke report of this occasion. At that time, Jesus made some significant observations about Peter's confession, which are reported only by Matthew. Keep in mind the perspective of the three writers. Matthew is the only one who was a first-hand witness of this dialogue that day. Now, notice what Jesus says about Peter's insight and future role as a result of this insightful reply in Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 through 19. First of all, Jesus points out that Peter received his revelation from God. Secondly, Jesus will build his church upon this revelatory word. Thirdly, the gates of hell shall not prevail against this church. And fourthly, Peter will receive keys, some sort of keys which will enable him to bind and loose. So what is this that Christ has promised Peter here? Well, it's impossible to say with absolute certainty, but it would appear that Peter's actions in the book of Acts were empowered as a result of this declaration by Jesus on this day. Specifically, when the Jews received the word along with the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, who moderated? Well, it was Peter, wasn't it? And when the Samaritans, who were the half-breed Jews, received the same for the first time in Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 25, who was summoned to moderate? Well, again, it was Peter. And when the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, verses 24 to 48, when they likewise received the word along with the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, who also moderated that event? Well, you know, again, Peter. So if you said Peter in answer to all three questions, you are absolutely correct. It appears that on all three occasions, Peter was exercising the keys which had been presented to him in this passage of Scripture. As a result, three separate categories of people, Jews, Samaritans, half-Jews, and Gentiles, not Jews at all. Well, that's everybody, isn't it? Those three categories of people were formally inducted into the newly founded church, the church that we know as the body of Christ. Those are some pretty powerful keys, wouldn't you say? There can be no question Peter was set apart for special service on this occasion. Now, let me clarify something here. Some have suggested that Jesus was speaking collectively to all of the disciples when he made these statements in Matthew chapter 16. In other words, they claim that Jesus was designating apostolic authority here. However, the Greek wording is very clear. While in English usage, the word you can mean plural or singular, not so in Greek. Now, this is important, so listen closely. All the references in verses 17 through 19 are using the second person personal pronoun, and they're all singular and refer only to Peter and Peter alone. They are not plural usages of the second person pronoun. They are singular usages. The same is the case with the person and number of the Greek verbs used in those verses. Therefore, this was not a general commissioning to all the disciples, but comments directed only to Peter. Distinct from the other general commissioning statements elsewhere directed to all of the apostles. Now, that much is certain. Incidentally, for those who might wonder... This conversation between Jesus and his disciples obviously took place in Greek, not Aramaic or Hebrew. 
The special play on words between the Greek name assigned to Peter, Petros, and its similarity to the Greek word for rock, Petra, is key in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, when he says, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The differentiation of this sentence would have made no sense spoken in Aramaic or Hebrew. The rock, Petra, is not Peter himself, but rather the revelation given by Peter in verse 16 when he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. However, it should be noted that Peter's Greek name, Petros, is a translation from the equivalent Aramaic word for rock as seen in John chapter 1, verse 42, when Jesus says to him, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah, thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. However, the difference between the proper masculine Greek name, Petros, and the feminine word for rock, Petra, is only a relational play on words in the Greek language. If such a play on words had been spoken between Jesus and Peter in Aramaic, Matthew surely would have given us the Aramaic equivalents in this passage. As we move to our next section of Scripture, we find Matthew chapter 16 and Mark chapter 8 and Luke chapter 9 all weighing in on uh, Peter being called Satan by Jesus. Let's look at that. Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show to his disciples how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Now let's see what Mark has to say about it in Mark chapter 8, verses 31 to 33. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly, and Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. And Luke just gives it one verse in Luke 9.22 saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. Well, Peter obviously didn't understand the whole plan at this point. He was good with the ministry aspect of Jesus, but just couldn't seem to comprehend the necessity of the crucifixion being presented here by Jesus. Of course, Jesus understood his role as the prophesied suffering Messiah. Isaiah 52 and 53 tells us all about that. He understood that from the beginning. But you might imagine that such a concept would be a difficult thing for his disciples to digest. If we see nothing else in this passage, we get the full impact of this necessity for crucifixion and Jesus' harsh reply to Peter when he says, Get thee behind me, Satan. Well, what did Jesus mean by that? Was Peter Satan? Well, no. A strong point is being made here by Jesus. Satan would have liked nothing better than for Jesus to take a pass on crucifixion. Redemption for all mankind would have been foiled had Jesus taken a pass on the crucifixion. That crucifixion is the key to salvation for all the ages. To suggest that Jesus skip his primary purpose for coming, the crucifixion, is to play right into the hands of satanic thinking. So in the strongest words possible, Jesus rebukes Peter for such a suggestion. But Peter was not, nor would he ever be, nor could he be, Satan. Interestingly, 
Luke does not record the actual rebuke of Peter by Jesus on this occasion. Then we find three passages, Matthew 16, verses 24 to 27, Mark 8, 34 to 38, Luke 9, 23 to 26, all dealing with the difference between discipleship and salvation. Matthew 16, 24. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Now from Mark's perspective in Mark eight thirty four through 38 And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now over to Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 26. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. So Jesus has just completed his comments regarding what lies ahead of them, the mock trials, the crucifixion, the resurrection. Peter's reaction in the preceding section of verses that we looked at indicated that he didn't anticipate that it would be going in this direction. Now it's time to clearly indicate the cost of discipleship that lies in their future. Now here's an important concept for understanding the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels. Salvation is different from discipleship. I'm going to say that again. Salvation is not the same thing. It is different from discipleship. As a matter of fact, let's add a category here. And I like to call it special purpose discipleship. Let's do some definitions and I'll show you what I mean. First of all, salvation. Salvation is trusting Jesus Christ by faith as your only means for eternal life and going to heaven. It's a born-again experience facilitated by the empowering of the Holy Spirit by faith that delivers the believer into God's family. An eternity-long covenant relationship is experienced between the believer and God as a result of being saved. Now, I've written an article on what the Bible says about eternal life that can be found under the topic section of BibleTrack.org. Next, let's define discipleship. Discipleship is the action of following and emulating the actions of Jesus. Interestingly enough, Judas was a disciple, but never experienced salvation. And we have that evidence in John chapter 6, verse 70, where Jesus said, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil. Now, the last category that you won't hear anywhere else, probably except from me, is what I like to call special purpose discipleship. And here's what I mean by that. The action of dropping everything one is doing, 
forsaking family ties and possessions, and exclusively committing everything, I mean all your resources, to the cause of ministering with Jesus in his earthly ministry. Now, as you can see, only people who lived during the lifetime and ministry of Jesus could qualify for that for that third category. So you say, whoa, what is this third category, special purpose discipleship? Well, simply speaking, let me put it like this. Jesus, on several occasions in the Gospels, called men to recognize the urgency of his earthly mission and drop everything, I mean everything, to follow and assist in this ministry. Let me give you an example. I married while I was in the United States Marine Corps during the Vietnam era. For nine months, I reported to my squadron each day and in the evening went home to my wife. Then I received my orders to the Western Pacific. And there was a hard and fast rule for people that got their Westpac orders, and here it was, no wives allowed. Even though I ultimately ended up serving in a squadron in Iwakuni, Japan, all of us who served in the Western Pacific were required to leave our wives and families behind and exclusively give our attention to the crisis at hand. So does being a Marine mean forsaking family? Well, not necessarily. But there were special circumstances, special purpose assignments that did require that. But other assignments didn't. So please understand this analogy. As Jesus neared his crucifixion, he sought disciples who would recognize this urgency, drop everything else they were involved in, including family, and follow him. I reject the notion that discipleship today involves turning one's back on family commitments. Context is really important here. This special purpose discipleship is to be distinguished from expectations of discipleship for the New Testament believer. The Apostle Paul makes clear throughout his writings the importance of commitment to one's family responsibilities. Now, since Jesus has just elaborated on the perilous events that will take place from this point forward leading up to his crucifixion, this is definitely a call to what we would certainly categorize as special purpose discipleship. I mean, discipleship that may very well go to the death and did go to the death for Jesus himself as he was crucified on the cross. Now let's take a look at a verse that's a little bit hard to explain. Actually, it's recorded in all three Gospels, Matthew sixteen twenty-eight, Mark 9, 1, and Luke chapter 9, verse 27. Here it is. Matthew sixteen twenty-eight. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, what Mark had to say in chapter 9, verse 1, is this. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And then finally, Luke chapter 9, verse 27. But I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. After this call to discipleship in the preceding verses, it would appear that Jesus is telling his disciples that they're going to witness the establishment of the kingdom of God, otherwise known as the kingdom of heaven in some places. And that's the kingdom which Jesus has been talking about since his earthly ministry began. He seems to indicate here that it will happen before they die. In reality, the kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven, still hasn't come. And it will not until a distinct yet future time. We know that, of course, as the millennium. So one naturally wonders what this statement means in Matthew sixteen twenty-eight and the other two passages as well that says, Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. 
Based on what we know from Scripture, it's logical to conclude that Jesus must have been talking about the transfiguration which takes place in the following verses. It takes place six days later, and it's recorded in all three synoptic accounts in Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9, Mark 9, verses 2 through 10, and Luke 9, verses 28 through 36. We'll look at those verses in a few moments. In fact, these very disciples did see Jesus in the presence of Elijah and Moses on that very occasion. Now, there's certainly a wide array of thinking regarding the meaning of this verse. The central consideration here is this. What is the kingdom of God? Until Israel declared its independence as a nation in 1948, after 2,500-plus years of not being a sovereign nation, many theologians promoted what is today called replacement theology. Simply stated, they believed that all the literal promises to Israel for the future would be fulfilled in the body of Christ, the church. To them, it simply wasn't realistic to believe after a period of over 2,500 years that Israel would once again become a literal nation. As such, they saw the New Testament church as the replacement entity in nearly every Old Testament prophecy regarding Israel, thus the term replacement theology. Incidentally, many of these commentators provided some excellent technical commentaries as well as popular commentaries that are still widely used as references today. I mean, how many copies of Matthew Henry's commentary are sitting on bookshelves around the world at this very moment? However, since the 1948 birth of Israel, most commentators today interpret prophecies regarding Israel literally rather than figuratively. That being the case, we must clearly define what is meant when Jesus refers to the kingdom of God. To the replacement theologian, they aren't so plentiful anymore. The kingdom of God refers to the birth of the church. However, this provides many, many problems of interpretation regarding Israel's specific comments that Jesus made regarding the kingdom all through the gospel accounts. I'm certain that when Jesus refers to the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, he's literally speaking of the time when Jesus will rule the earth as the Messiah. That was the reality the Jews of his day were looking for, and that's the reality he addressed. I'm not comfortable with making Jesus' term kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, a moving target. I'm convinced that Jesus meant it to be understood literally each time he used the term. Now, that being said, I'm uneasy with calling the ascension of Jesus in Acts chapter 1 the fulfillment of this prophecy. That is a replacement theology notion that equates the New Testament church to be the equivalent of Israel, the equivalent to Israel with regard to prophecy. Likewise, some replacement theologians turned preterist in their view of prophecy, see the fulfillment of this prophecy and the destruction of the temple. In order to make that premise work, they insist that the Apostle John's writing of his revelation took place before the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Now, most scholars today date the writing of Revelation somewhere around 95 A.D. The preterist sees the kingdom of God established in the form of New Testament believers and further believes that most, if not all, of the events in the book of Revelation were fulfilled leading up to, to the destruction of the Jerusalem temple. Therefore, dismissing the short-sighted theories that Israel is the church and the church is Israel, the literalist is left with the task of explaining how these disciples could have seen the coming of the kingdom of God before they died. Now, while not completely satisfying to the inquiring mind, the occurrence of the transfiguration of Jesus six days later in the presence of Moses and Elijah may have very well served to fulfill this prophecy. And we're going to look at that, as a matter of fact, right now. 
Let's look at the transfiguration recorded in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 9, Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 10, and Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter and James and John his brother and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine in the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. Now from Mark's perspective, in Mark chapter 9, beginning with verse 2. And after six days Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John, and leadeth them up into an high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he wist not what to say, for they were so afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And suddenly when they had looked round about, they saw no man any more, save Jesus only with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen, till the Son of Man were risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another what the rising from the dead should mean. And finally, Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 28. The transfiguration again from Luke's perspective. And it came to pass, about an eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the fashion of his countenance was altered, and his raiment was white and glistening. And behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and they that were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were awake, they saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass, as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them, and they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone, and they kept it close, and told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. Now, as we saw in the preceding section of Scripture, Jesus had said a few days earlier that some of his disciples would see some kind of a sight which would serve as a demonstration of his coming kingdom. We saw that in Matthew sixteen twenty-eight, Mark 9, 1, and Luke nine twenty-seven. Well, here's that event. We know it is the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John are all present. The face of Jesus, along with his garments, begins shining as Elijah and Moses appear with Jesus. He then has a conversation with Elijah and Moses. Peter's first inclination following is to make a tourist attraction of this spot. 
Then they hear a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. This event served the disciples as a foreshadowing of the kingdom of heaven that was to come. But Jesus explains that other Old Testament prophecies must be fulfilled first, including the crucifixion and resurrection. They ask among themselves, Well, reckon what it all means. Matthew and Mark put a time stamp on this event. They use the term after six days. That's from the occasion of Matthew 16, 28, Mark 9, 1, and Luke 9, 27. Luke describes the lapse time as about eight days. Technically, both are correct and obviously intended to be approximations as to when the transfiguration took place in relation to the previous verse. Incidentally, the appearance of Moses and Elijah on this occasion lends credibility to the notion that the two witnesses found in Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 14, are these two prophets, Moses and Elijah, resurrected. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walton.